Thank you. Anyone looking at the newspapers in the last few days may have noticed that public opinion is completely blind to fact, uh, even if it's not scientific. I mean, the Jimmy Savile fiasco, uh, the Lance, um, what's his name, Armstrong uh, fiasco. If it sells newspapers, it doesn't have to be true. Um, and that can have some exceedingly serious consequences. And I want to explore some of those today. In 2009, as a result of uh, the, some of the work that I'm teaching, I've been doing in medical physics, I became very unhappy indeed about the public perceptions of radiation. And so I wrote a book which has no equations in it. It's for everybody to understand. It's not very hard. Um, and that was in 2009. And in fact, not in this lecture theatre, I think in the Martin Wood Lecture Theatre, uh, four days before Fukushima, I gave a lecture on uh, about radiation. And I wouldn't change a word of what I said then uh, today. So I want to talk about Fukushima and Chernobyl and what we know and what we don't know. Uh, in fact, we know almost everything. Uh, unfortunately, the story ends up rather like a Shakespearean tragedy when you go to Japan. Uh, it's all about suspicions, good intentions, complete misunderstandings, and unnecessary misery uh, and suffering. Uh, and as scientists, those of you who are scientists and mathematicians, we've really got to uh, grab hold of this agenda. So we need to lead on the science and the understanding to answer the questions, not, of course, that doing things just by authority. We want to know uh, the actual uh, facts for ourselves. Nevertheless, uh, I think we should take some guidance from others who, in their careers, impressed the uh, public to the point of getting themselves put on banknotes. If you get yourself put on a banknote, I think that is a way of saying you have made a valuable contribution to mankind. And the four people I want to watch are Mary Curie, for obvious reasons, but you will note, first of all, that she was a physicist and a chemist and a radiologist, exceedingly broad. She got Nobel Prize in two subjects. Uh, and she wrote, nothing in life is to be feared, it is to be understood. And then there was Charles Darwin, who I will have a great deal to say about. He, of course, was a student of divinity, what we call theology in Oxford, uh, at Cambridge. Uh, he was a distinguished geologist uh, and, of course, as we know, a naturalist and a biologist. So there's nothing particularly narrow about him. Then there was Florence Nightingale, who wasn't an academic, at least most of us don't think so. She was actually a rather distinguished statistician. And she's one of the first people actually get to get statistics, in that, in that case, of what happened to the soldiers in the Crimea, and shove them under the noses of the politicians of the day and get them to respond to statistical information. And we will have quite a lot to say uh, about what uh, she contributed. 
how very little can be done under the spirit of fear, she wrote. And then there was Adam Smith, the economist and philosopher. Science is the great antidote, the poison of enthusiasm and superstition. And he wasn't just thinking about the South Sea bubble and misperceptions about, uh, about uh, Jimmy Savile, but he could equally well have been talking about misperceptions about radiation. I'm going to divide the talk into four parts. The first is what happened at Fukushima. The second is why have there been no casualties? I mean, the fact that there are no casualties is one thing, but why have there been none? And then how dangerous is radiation? Because it certainly can be dangerous. How dangerous is it? And finally, why are many frightened of nuclear power? And that, of course, is a more sociological uh, um, part of the talk. So let's talk about, let me talk about the, 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 uh, the science. Some of you are probably scientists and others aren't. Don't worry. The first thing is that the science of radiation and nuclear is not particularly hard. It's just been supposed to be hard, so everybody switches off. So let me give a little sketch. Most of the world that we deal with, chemistry, burning, lasers, light, all that sort of thing, is associated with the outer part of the atom where the electrons are. And right in the middle of the, each atom, there is a nucleus. And the nucleus is 100,000 times smaller than the atom. That means, for instance, sometimes it's drawn as if it was like the solar system. It's much smaller than that. If you stood on the end edge of the atom, you wouldn't be able to see the nucleus. It's much, much smaller than the, uh, than the sun, relatively speaking. And it's the nucleus is completely isolated. In fact, it does, to a very good approximation, absolutely nothing. The only thing it does is it rotates on its axis. And actually, that's what happens in MRI. But that's a footnote. The only thing that a nucleus can do is to decay. It can't get anywhere near another nucleus because of the enormous electrical forces inside the atom. It is quite impossible for nuclei to meet one another, except once every few billion years at the centre of the sun, because that is so incredibly hot. But here, doesn't happen. The only thing it can do, as I say, is to decay. Now, before the Earth was formed, there was a lot of nuclear physics. And all the atoms we see around us today, with the exception of hydrogen, are all the result of uh, nuclear physics. They are all nuclear waste, if you like it but a few uh, billion years old. And some of them are still decaying. Very rarely, but a few are. And that is what we call radioactivity. Although it has enormous energy, it happens so rarely that it wasn't even discovered until the end of the 19th, uh, 19th century. But inside the Earth, uh, there is, uh, 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 there is uh, radioactivity spread through the 
the body of the Earth, and that is why the Earth is hot. Otherwise, if the Earth was just a matter of cooling down, uh, Lord Kelvin showed it would cool down in about a million years. But it doesn't. It's taken at least a thousand times longer than that uh, because it has been constantly heated by the radioactivity. And in fact, the radioactivity in the Earth is responsible for the heat that created volcanic activity that makes uh, earthquakes and tsunamis. All of that is nuclear energy from radioactive decay, in fact. In 1835, Charles Darwin, who's on the Beagle by then, he hadn't got to the Galapagos by then, uh, in 1835, he was in Chile when the time of the great Chilean uh, earthquake of 1835. And he saw that earthquake and the tsunami that went in it with it, and he was very impressed indeed. He made a lot of observations about geology in his book, The, the, uh, uh, the, um, the Voyage of the Beagle. And I can thoroughly recommend you to read it. It's quite hard work, but it's very rewarding. So, what happened in Japan on the 11th of March, 2011? Well, it's very interesting. The Japanese, as a people, are very well drilled as to what to do and what happens when a, an earthquake happens uh, and when a tsunami happened. And although this is much bigger than they'd had before, they knew what to do. There were 500,000 people in the area that was inundated by the tsunami. And in between 26 and 45 minutes, they got all those people out of there, except 18,800 who were killed by the, the, uh, the flood. Very impressive indeed. But when the radiation came, they didn't know about radiation. And so they panicked, and they're still panicking today. So what happened with the reactors? Well, as soon as the earthquake came, not the tsunami, as soon as the earthquake came, the reactors were turned off. So the only heat that they were generating was the radioactivity of the, uh, of the um, radioactive atoms that al had already been formed. That's a lot of heat to get rid of. It's rather like uh, the problem when you have a, a um, hydroelectric dam and there's a crack in it. There's a lot of stored energy there uh, and you've got to do something about it. And it was that heat that had got to be got rid of. There was no new radioactivity uh, generated and that heat's got to be lost. And the rest of the story actually is chemistry, not uh, nuclear physics, because the uh, the reactors got very hot, and the zirconium, which is a, a metal which just holds the uranium in place, it doesn't take part in the reaction, not meant to take part in the reaction at all, but that reacted with the water at uh, over, well over a thousand degrees and created hydrogen, rather like uh, sodium does at room temperature uh, in the lab, if you put it in water. And this created an enormous pressure, as well as a high temperature, inside the reactors, 
And of course, the operators, with a great deal of difficulty and a lot of bravery, managed to release the, the pressure inside the uh, reactor vessel and let it out. Uh, and this hydrogen, hydrogen burns and can explode in air, and not surprisingly, it did. But by then, it was nothing to do. It was just hydrogen and oxygen. However, that got onto the internet as a, an explosion at a nuclear power plant, and that sells newspapers like nothing else. And so it did sell newspapers like nothing else. And uh, with 24-hour news, which has grown like Topsy in recent years, uh, stories that this was worse than Chernobyl, etc., etc., uh, were propagated. Now, the radioactivity was blown out when the hydrogen came out of the uh, reactor vessels, and this got, did get spread around. But uh, it was not, nothing to do with the explosions, and it has caused no casualties, which is something that we're going to have to come back to. So there was no radiation disaster. I mean, a few nuclear reactors destroyed themselves. Well, that's very expensive for somebody. But there was no uh, health consequences of that radiation at all. There were health consequences of the panic, and we're going to, we'll come to that. Now, this was very obvious in the first few days, and it's very difficult to get through to the press, but they were so gobsmacked by what was happening in Japan that for one brief moment it was possible to get in and actually get the truth published, which I managed to do on the 26th of March, uh, which is therefore just a couple of weeks uh, after the uh, after the accident, where I said no one has died and is unlikely to. Well, we can say that even more emphatically now. Well, of course, it's very essential in order to understand what people think and why they think it and so on, to actually go to places and talk to people. And so in October, uh, I went and spoke with school teachers and doctors and community leaders and so on, and found out what was actually going on uh, at ground level uh, in this uh, disaster. And there are a few pictures. You can see there a picture of the detritus from the tsunami and a few derricks in, on the horizon, which are in fact the derricks at the nuclear power plant taken from a distance of about three kilometers. It was very interesting talking to the community leaders. They were given no guidance whatsoever from central government about what was going on. They were left entirely on their own. And so they're extremely interested that we were able to come and talk to them. I should say, we, in this case, was uh, um, um, Professor Tokuhiro from uh, Idaho University, who's a nuclear engineer, on the right up there, and me uh, and the other two are uh, doctors at, uh, um, in Japan.
So there was fear and panic and failure of leadership and the press not listening, running around, finding experts, telling them who would tell them what they wanted to sell more newspapers. And that wasn't very difficult. And as a result of all this, at a personal family level in the communities in Japan, where people were uh, told they'd got to move out of their homes, uh, their businesses folded, there were bankruptcies, there were suicides, there were death of elderly people who were forcibly moved, alcoholism, uh, uh, family breakup, and uh, bedwetting amongst young people, all the kinds of things that you'd expect from severe stress on a community. The, I, I've seen figures of uh, 700 uh, deaths related to this, nothing to do with radiation, nothing to do with a tsunami, um, but I think these are just uh, not, not, not very well substantiated numbers. Let's look at some of the numbers and see what they actually mean. Now, I'm not going to do anything terribly complicated. These are just the result of multiplying and dividing a few numbers together and then checking with what other people see. Let's look at what the food situation is. The Japanese, particularly the mothers, got terrified that they were feeding their children radioactive food. So the government came in on the July 2011 said that all food had got to have less than 500 becquerels per kilogram. You don't need to know what that is because it's just going to compare, compare with something else. Now, I calculated what eating one kilogram of food with that uh, radioactivity would do, uh, and it would give you that dose 0.008 millisieverts per kilogram. But again, don't worry, we're going to compare that with something else. If you look at a CT scan, if you have a CT scan, you get eight of these millisievert things. That means that you could eat eight divided by 0 0.008, or 1,000 kilograms, otherwise known as a ton, of food, and get the same radiation dose as one CT scan. Doesn't sound as if the food's very dangerous, does it? And certainly, you can't eat a ton of food in three months. Interestingly enough, the numbers that uh, I calculated here actually agree uh, with what the Japanese government were saying. But the mothers of Japan went ape, and they protested and they marched, so the government gave in. And in April 2012, they lowered the tolerance to 100 becquerels per kilogram, which means that you'd have to eat five tons of radioactive food to get the same as one CT scan. How about water? We've got some extraordinary things happen. In April, uh, 11,500 tons were re released into the sea intentionally. There were, there were some leaks of smaller amounts of more radioactive water, but this lot of water was released intentionally to make space uh, in their limited uh, tanks for storing more of the cooling water. And the release of these 11,500 tons was stated to be uh, 100 times 
the regulation limit and they were also stated to be absolutely safe. Both of those statements are true, but they do stretch people's credibility a bit, don't they? In fact, you, if you, it's not difficult to calculate that it's equivalent to two CT scans if you were to drink a litre of that water every day for three months, uh, which is not recommended anyway. Um, so everything is completely out of kilter and uninformed by the science. Uh, I won't go into evacuation, just to say that it could have been 60 times less stringent, which would mean by the time I wrote that BBC article, everybody uh, can and should have gone home. In the first few weeks, one doesn't know, because you haven't got any readings. But within a couple of weeks, there start to be readings of exactly what the situation was uh, and then people could have gone home. But no, there was more panic and people have still not gone home. Why? Nuclear radiation is extremely powerful at a at the level of an individual molecule. And nuclear radiation can knock a DNA molecule for six uh, and um, do a great deal of damage. So it can smash it. So incidentally, can oxygen uh, and uh, even random thermal collisions when molecules bang into one another. So all molecules in our body are subject to being bashed around and suffering attacks of various kinds and radiation is just another one. So one wonders how life survives uh, given that DNA is really very delicate. And that's the point where uh, one has to look at the role taken by evolutionary biology, which is where why uh, Mr. Darwin uh, appears at this point uh, on my slides. In fact, if you think about it, it's the business of biology. In fact, the only business of biology is to protect life from attack. That's all it's there for. Everything in the design of biology is to stabilize life against attack. That is why life is the way it is at all uh, multiple levels. And just like an electronic circuit which is stabilized uh, up to a point or a uh, car suspension system which is stabilized up to a point, uh, the effect of increasing the attack uh, will give you no response until it's overpowered and the mechanism, the, rep the repair mechanism and the stabilizing me mechanism becomes overwhelmed and then you get uh, failure. So you get typically a curve like this in where you have a stabilized region and eventually the load, the attack becomes too big uh, and you get a failure. And that's characterized by two things, both 
electronically and mechanically and in biology and so on. Uh, first of all, where does the threshold, where does the failure uh, start to occur? And the other is, how long does it take for the stabilizing mechanism to work? In electronics, that's just a feedback uh, time, but there are equivalent times in uh, biology which take how long the repairs and so on uh, take. So, for instance, when we look at the design of biology, why does every single cell in your body have a complete copy of all the DNA, not just for that cell, but for all the other cells as well? The answer is it's protection against the destruction of the system. It's just making lots and lots of copies of everything. That obviously makes extremely good sense. Why does DNA have a double helix? It's not only so that it can be copied, so that it can copy itself, but also because it can be repaired. Because when, if radiation or oxygen or anything else breaks one of the strands, it's possible to put the other strand, put the, mend that strand unambiguously. And it's possible, as it turns out, even when you break two strands, to do this quite often as well. Now, most of the mechanisms are much more complicated than that. Some of them we don't know about yet. Every year, we learn a bit more. There was a very interesting paper from Berkeley this uh, last summer, uh, earlier this year, uh, 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 which advanced the knowledge. So we're learning all the time just how brilliant biology is at this business of stabilizing uh, life. Of course, the whole business of birth, life, and death is another way of stabilizing life, because it's not the individual that biology is trying to preserve, but uh, the, um, the line um, and the, the family, if you like it. Of course, biology has been doing this with plants and animals and things for hundreds of millions of years and getting the answer right. But it doesn't tell the brain. People worry that they don't know uh, about what's going on in radiation in their bodies. It was never designed that the brain should be told. The whole story has been devolved to the level of something that cells look after. And it is now known from experiments in the lab that cells talk to one another. They know when they're being attacked. They provide resources to one another. There are chemical messaging systems uh, which they organize together how they're going to repair. And the last thing they do is to tell head office, because uh, just comes and uh, tries to micromanage the thing. And uh, that, of course, is what we're seeing today. So, but it's not all roses. There is a point at which radiation is dangerous. And what we need to know is where is that point and when does it come, come become dangerous and what should we do about it? Uh, and in addition to that, it's not just 
a scientific question, but we've got to look at the social side of it and how we manage um, people's perceptions of uh, radiation dangers and keep that under control. At the moment, people think that there's green radiation, which is what comes out of rocks and is natural and so on, as I told you, that actually is responsible for creating the entire earthquake and tsunami in Japan. But nevertheless, that's what people think of as, as green radiation. It's natural, so it must be okay. Then there's amber radiation, which is what you get from the hospital, at the hospital from in medicine, in clinical medicine, because the doctor gives you, and you don't choose to have that, but if he advises you to have it, it's probably a good thing, and most people uh, say thank you for it. And then there's the red stuff that comes out of, out of uh, nuclear accidents. Of course, all of these kinds of radiation are exactly the same, uh, and uh, it's not even clear uh, in some cases which is the biggest and which is the smallest. The only question, looking at the sociology of it, the only question is how dangerous is radiation to life? That's represented symbolically by that green sphere. All the questions that occur at a sociological level, like the risk assessment, the public acceptance of radiation, the safety regulations, what is safe and what isn't, what should be in law and what shouldn't, what the working practices of people working on nuclear power stations, what the effects of radioactive waste is concerned and how we should treat it, and all the questions associated with costs of nuclear uh, um, technology, they come as a result of the answer to the question whether radiation is dangerous or not. And then at an in international, that's at a national level. Then at an international level, of course, all hell let loose because politicians and terrorists and so on are playing uh, nasty games, which they would anyway with, uh, with biological weapons or something else. Um, but dirty bombs, threats, nuclear blackmail and all the rest of it, Iran and so on. So the only question for us is whether, how dangerous is radiation to life? There's another important thing, because of this stabilizing mechanism, it's very important to distinguish between radiation which comes in as a flash all at once, where repair can't, doesn't have time to do very much, and radiation which is spread out over a long period and for which repair is going on uh, all the time. And the latter is obviously, for the same amount of radiation, is much, much less harmful. Um, we will have to uh, look at that. And this is relevant to when people look at the effects of radiation that's shone on you from the outside or that's inside you. Now, it's very unnerving to think that there's radiation, radioactivity inside you. But in fact, that is necessarily much more spread out in time and is actually less harmful uh, for the same dose than something which is shone on you. And at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, which we'll be looking at later if I don't run out of time, um, uh, at Hiroshima and Nagasaki, it was a flash of radiation, which is the worst uh, kind. 
at Fukushima, it was radioactivity uh, which is absorbed into the body and it spread out over months and years uh, following. I think I'm going to have to skip a bit because I'm uh, certainly not keeping up to time. Uh, here, there's a picture of uh, in inviting uh, Japanese people to have very high uh, doses of radiation for their own health. And if you look in the bottom left-hand corner, paying a lot of money for it, um, uh, about the same amount of radiation as their uh, countrymen being turfed out of their houses for at the other end of Japan. Uh, you, of course, the, these uh, kinds of uh, uses of radiation are extremely good for imaging uh, um, cancers and so on in the, uh, in the body. But let's get back to looking at the background. So this is the green the green radiation, if you like it, the natural stuff. Um, and here in Oxford, we probably get about 2.4 millisieverts per year. And that comes from rocks uh, and internal, because there is uh, natural radioactivity in uh, potassium in our blood. And it's always been there, so it can't be uh, a problem. Um, there's cosmics that come from outer space, and there's the medical doses that we have. All that is assumed to be okay, and the most cautious application of radiation safety can't get down below that level. That's unreasonable. So, in fact, the, the radiation could do two things to you. One is that it can overload the cell cycle. And if it overloads the cell cycle, then biology stops. And it stops in about the time of the cell cycle, which is at most uh, a few days or weeks. Um, and this is called acute radiation syndrome. The other thing that can go wrong is that the copying of the DNA goes wrong, uh, and that over a period, eventually, uh, some serious growth gets out of hand, which is what we know of, uh, as cancer. So we've got four kinds of situation to worry about. One is radiation, which comes in a flash. How often does that cause acute radiation syndrome, and how often does it cause cancer? And then we've got radiation, which is there all the time, chronic radiation. How often does that call acute, cause acute radiation syndrome? And how often does it cause cancer? Let's look at acute radiation syndrome from a flash of radiation. And here's some of the most obvious data. These, this is for the firefighters who went in at Chernobyl and of the firefighters who got more than 4,000 millisieverts in a day or so, uh, 20, there were 42 of them, and 27 of them died within uh, a few weeks uh, from acute radiation syndrome, despite attempts to 
uh, give them blood transfusions and, uh, and so on. But below 2,000 millisieverts, none of them died. So there's a definite threshold there, uh, and that is widely acknowledged. I should say that at Fukushima, nobody got more than a few hundred millisieverts. So nobody got with anywhere near that threshold of acute radiation syndrome. The other source of information we have, which everybody knows about, is radiotherapy. Now, radiation has been used to kill cancer, uh, to actually stop the cell cycle for cancer cells for over a hundred years. And there are probably people in this, there may even be people in this room, certainly there will be more of my generation in the audience, who have benefited from that. It's not unusual, but probably, and probably members of your family have received that. So this is not something uh, handed out by governments. And, uh, and it's something that people have first-hand uh, knowledge of. If you have radiotherapy, you don't get it all at once. As most of you probably know, it's very unpleasant really. You have to go back to the hospital again and again and again. And over about six or eight weeks, you get some radiation every day. And what is happening is that, that repair the repair mechanism, the feedback, the stabilization is being used uh, to, uh, so that the tumour gets about 2,000 millisieverts every day and just fails to repair itself every day, whereas the, uh, the tissue round in the rest of the body gets up to 1,000 millisieverts every day and just manages to repair itself. Maybe the hair falls out uh, or something, or there are burns on the skin, but you survive. Here's actually a picture taken from the hospital here of a treatment plan for somebody with prostate cancer. Uh, and you can see that the inner contour, which is 97% contour, which is the, the area of the prostate that's being treated, but the regions around the, it's a, it's a horizontal section through the lower abdomen. Um, the, the, uh, the rest of the section of the patient is getting a pretty high dose. That heavy contour is a 50% contour. So there's quite a lot of the patient who's getting quite a high dose. Uh, and they need to survive that, and they do survive that, otherwise they would have a very nasty uh, time for the rest of their lives. So we can uh, survive very high levels of radiation, and most of us know somebody who has. Well, then there's Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And Hiroshima and Nagasaki is a, a flash of radiation, and there the question is uh, about causing cancer. I'm uh, aware that I'm running a bit short of time, although 
I think I started a bit. I started a bit, uh, bit late. Um, most of the people, well, a third of the people at Hiroshima and Nagasaki were blown away by the blast or burnt to death uh, by the firestorm uh, that went with it. But two-thirds of them survived and were findable uh, in 1950. And those people, after five years, those people, their health has been followed and studied very carefully for 50 years. And the question is, how many extra of those people died from cancer compared with other Japanese cities where they had not been bombed? And that analysis has been done, uh, and the extra people there are that very thin uh, purple area, which shows that most people who died of cancer uh, would have died anyway. Now, I don't find this argument quite good enough. It has to be more than that. Because what, they what has been done in three different ways is to measure what the radiation dose of individual people were. And by looking at how the cancer rates depend on the individual radiation doses, the argument becomes a lot more convincing. So this is a, a table in which each line of the table represents increasing bands of radiation dose. And by the time you get down to the near the bottom of the table, uh, you're getting extra risk per thousand. Well, that's, that's 7.2 to 10.8 percent extra increase of, of, uh, of cancer. So that's substantial. And of course, they're talking about a very large number of people here. So the statistical errors are small. However, uh, if you go down to the lowest doses, below 100 millisieverts, what's shown there in green, the chances of getting extra cancers are statistically not significant compared with different compared with what they were in other Japanese cities. Even in this horrifically large uh, experiment, if we may call it that, in which two Japanese cities have been bombed with nuclear weapons and their health followed for 50 years. Now, if you don't see an effect in, an, in a data set like that, it must, be a pretty, it must be pretty small. And in fact, it is the chance of dying for uh, people who lived in Hiroshima and Nagasaki, the chance of them dying of radiation-induced cancer in the next 50 years is less than the chance of being killed on the road in 50 years. That's not negligible, but we face that kind of... of and it's certainly not uh, what most of us were brought up to believe. So those green, that green entry su uh, uh, suggests that 100 millisieverts is a reasonable uh, tolerance for a flash of radiation. But what about radiation you get all the time? Here's another story that sounds rather horrendous. It's rather horrendous. In the time between the 19, 
15 and 1950, people used to paint the luminous dials of watches and instruments with radioactive paint so they glowed in the dark. Uh, and this was very important, not only in the war effort, but uh, in civil life as well. Uh, and the application of luminous paint was quite tricky and it involves painting very fine detail. And those who did it found they could get a much better point on their paintbrush if they licked the end of the paintbrush. And the radium that, that they ingested went into their uh, bones and having got into their bones, it stayed there more or less for the rest of their lives. And radium has got a very long half-life, so it's not difficult, not that difficult anyway, to calculate exactly what dose those people had even when you uh, have to exhume them from their graves. And uh, because it goes to their bone, it's predominantly bone cancer. And bone cancer, not like uh, lung cancer, is a relatively unusual form of cancer. So there isn't a, a, a large uh, counting rate from which has nothing to do with radiation. Almost all of it is to do with radiation. And here are the figures which show that, that only for those who had more than 10,000 milligrays. Now, I won't go into the details of, of, uh, of that. Uh, had a very substantial, we don't have to play statistics here, 46 cases of bone cancer where less than one was expected. So no statistics, just clear facts. Um, and here is a scatter plot which shows the uh, activity, radioactivity that they absorbed against the year that they went into the industry. Because in 1926, it was realized what was going on, and it said, stop licking your paintbrushes. And the net result was that the radiation dose fell dramatically. Uh, and the people who died of bone cancer are given by little pluses here and everybody else with little uh, zeros. And there is a threshold given by that dotted line running across at 3.7 million becquerels. You hear a lot about thousands of becquerels uh, in the newspaper. This is millions of becquerels, all their lives. Um, but at 3.7, below 3.7 million becquerels, there are no cases of bone cancer. Now, we've got a, we've, which is, gives us a, a threshold, but we've got a problem of getting across to the public. How are we going to get across to the public? And here, as I say, I think we should take a note of how Florence Nightingale went about it. She got the data and then she drew diagrams. Now I don't know, I don't think I taught any of you as undergraduates because uh, I've been retired a year or two but uh, if I had in your first year I would have been 
on again and again and again every week. Draw a diagram. Because you've got to use diagrams to get across to people, especially uh, in uh, the, the people who are not scientists. And Florence Nightingale managed to do that and get the powers that be in the, in the war office and so on, take some notice, and I think that was brilliant. So she drew diagrams. We've got to draw a diagram. So here's my, my diagram. Let's look at monthly doses as areas. That big red rectangle is a monthly dose that kills tumours. So uh, that's red. <laughs> that's, uh, that's fatal for those, uh, for those cells. But half that, 20,000 millisieverts, per month is what cells of your body get, uh, parts of your body, organs get, which do manage to survive. <coughs> Actually, they get about a 5% chance of getting secondary cancers. It's not, it's not completely safe, but it is life-saving. But then the secondary cancer may have to, to be... Anyway, that's like 20,000 millisieverts. So what I've been uh, campaigning for is a conservative safe dose, uh, which is 100 millisieverts per month, which comes out of the dial painter's thing, which is 200 times less. And 200 times less than, than uh, half a percent is, is uh, something incredibly... <coughs> Incredibly small. But what's interesting, <coughs> that 100 millisieverts per month, which is as high as is relatively safe, because that's what a, a, a safety level should be. It should be what you can tolerate. Don't want to get any higher, but you, it's okay up to that. If you look at what is handed down by the international authorities, by those uh, to those Japanese who were saying about the water and so on. It, that is one millisievert per year, 0.1 millisievert per month, and, ah yes, you can just see a little dot, the area of that little dot at the end of the arrow. That is 0.1 millisievert per month, which is a thousand times smaller than my green rectangle. And that's what I'm talking about. So, Radiation protection levels could be a thousand times looser than uh, what is. I'm going to have to jump ahead. Um, so we've got to sell that. We've got to look at why are people frightened of nuclear power? Uh, answer because. That's what people learned in the Cold War, uh, and that was um, all propaganda, if you like it. Um, there's the fact that we can't feel radiation, which unnerves people. But as I say, we know why. We've already covered why that is, because biology has taken it, the task away from the, the brain and given it to the cells, and they do a fantastic job. And finally, the other reason for uh, being frightened of radiation 
is these stupid regulations which tell you that it is very dangerous. But those were designed just as a way of reassuring everybody and in the time of the Cold War and saying, there, there, we promise you, you will not have to tolerate any radiation which is significantly more than you get in the background out of the rocks and so on anyway. And that was a stupid thing to do because that's not a safety level, that's a level of political reassurance. And that is called ALARA, as low as reasonably achievable. That is the acronym that they use for establishing these very low levels and saying that's what the safety level should, should uh, be. And, well, who's to blame? There is a cycle that you can go round and round and round where the public panic at the bottom and demand of their politicians that everything is tightened up and then it's the it's tightened up more, international committees come along and uh, lay their hands on uh, and approve some ridiculous level and that comes down to the government again uh, which is making things more and more expensive by the way um, and then the press says look this could exceed the new regulation levels of course it could because it shouldn't have been like that in the first place so who's to blame? Whose fault is it, all this? And the answer is our fault, at least the people of my generation, who marched and sat in and jumped up and down and voted uh, and protested to get these punitive levels of radiation uh, safety. And now, what should we do? Well, it's education, you know. We've got to educate people uh, and reassure them uh, as to what the, um, what the situation really is. Well, I haven't got time to talk about nuclear waste, but if somebody wants to ask, there it is. Uh, radiation is not a world-stopping uh, danger. We all know what the real danger is are political and economic stability, jobs, uh, food, water, uh, and the like. Radiation just doesn't appear in that list. Uh, we need education. We need trust in science and trust in society. One of the awful things of going to Japan is to find that nobody trusts anybody. I mean, I'm not talking just in a scientific context. They don't trust one another. Uh, I'm glad to say in this country things are, are it seems to me, are, are better. But trust in science and trust in, in society go pretty closely together, as I think um, Adam Smith would have appreciated. We need to explain radiation uh, in simple terms and remove the uh, stigma. Uh, we use quite happy to use radiation for personal health. It's about time we started using it for the health of the planet uh, in the same sort of way. You can also buy a book. 
but let me finish on a slightly different note. As uh, anybody who's a scientist will realise, ultraviolet radiation of the kind that you get in sunshine is just as dangerous as nuclear radiation. In fact, it's on the edge of nuclear radiation. It can break up uh, DNA molecules, uh, it can cause cell death, it can cause cancer, skin cancer, uh, and in fact is a rather serious source of that. But we don't bring the whole of our economy to a halt because of this. What we do is things like, I picked up this plastic bag in the, in the, uh, in the summer. I thought, how lovely. That says it's a, from a high street uh, chemist telling mum and dad in simple terms how to look after and be sensible, as we usually are, about sunshine when we go on holiday and so that people and the children don't get cancer and so on. And that's full of the joy of life and it's positive and that's the way we should be looking uh, at nuclear radiation, uh, in my view. What a breath of fresh air. Anyway, I think I should stop there. <laughs>